DW Living Planet with Charlie Shield. A two of the world's most beloved beverages, coffee and wine, viable in a world warped by climate change. Today, from Uganda to Italy, we hear from the growers, the producers and the connoisseurs finding new ways to keep them in our future. In the past, coffee used to yield without pests or long dry spells. Another way to actually adapt to climate change is to think or to rethink about uh, our taste. So we should think about wine as a different product. And later, we hear how an alternative to fueling flights with kerosene is coming along in France. All that coming up. This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. Every day across the world, it's estimated that around 2 billion cups of coffee are consumed. And in order to produce just one of those cups, it takes a whopping 140 litres of water. That's needed to grow, process and transport the coffee beans, not to mention the water in the cup itself. And as global average temperatures rise, water is one resource that's becoming increasingly volatile. It's not there when it should be, there's too much of it when it is, and rainfall is overall becoming far less predictable. So for tropical coffee-growing hotspots, such as Africa, coffee farmers are having to get creative to grow the fruit that so many of us are addicted to. And in this first story on the show, we're going to hear how that's playing out in Uganda, which is home to some of the most delicious beans I've ever had the pleasure of indirectly consuming. It's there that farmers are trying out new methods and blending them with traditional ones to cope with less rainfall and higher temperatures and still grow beautiful, bountiful beans. Aaron Kiaga is carefully inspecting bunches of coffee berries. They are the fruit of much labour. For decades, he and his family have been growing coffee in central Uganda's Luero district. It hasn't made him rich, but he has been able to support his family. But... As he walks through the leafy plantation, dry brush underfoot, he says climate change is making his business even more difficult. In the past, coffee used to yield without pests or long dry spells. We got rain at the expected time. These days, rain is unpredictable, and when it stops, often we face longer dry spells. The coffee industry is one of Uganda's most important economic sectors. The African country exports over 250,000 tons annually, making it one of the world's top 10 coffee producers. 99% of it is grown on small farms like Aaron Kiaga's, where workers often handpick the fruit, collecting it in baskets. Some 5 million Ugandans depend on the coffee harvest either directly or indirectly. Climate change is threatening their work too. Lack of water is one problem, but rising temperatures are also increasing the number of pests and diseases that destroy the crops, says Girma Hailu, 
an entomologist with the International Center of Insect Physiology and Ecology, a non-profit research institute based in Nairobi, Kenya. An insect which was not very serious at some point can become detrimental just because one or two degrees of Celsius increased, either by cutting trees or due to the climate change. That means if, let's say, the, from egg to egg hatching, if it is taken seven days, the normal temperature, with one degree centigrade, it might take four days. That's because higher temperatures mean insects will hatch much faster, increasing the life cycle of those insects by two or threefold. Back on his farm, Aaron Kiyaga explains how he is trying to plant more trees as a way to bolster his coffee crop. In the open area, coffee is exposed to excess heat and its cup quality is not as good as when it's grown under a tree shade. Instead of rows of coffee shrubs lined up in the hot sun, they are nestled between the soaring trees in a woodland. This kind of farming is called agroforestry. It harnesses the symbiotic relationship between trees, crops, and animals. Aron Kiaga is taking part in the robust scheme, which is being tested on 50 plots of land to determine how coffee harvest can be protected from climate change. The European Union has funded the project with 4.5 million euros. Entomologist Hailu says the scheme harks back to traditional methods. It is a typical African way of farming system. Wherever you go in African soil, farmers use diversified cropping system. You see trees, you see chicken, you see very, very diverse. So now we are bringing that same traditional farming system with a designed approach so that the farmers are benefiting more from it. Some 50,000 coffee farmers will be using the robust scheme by 2025, according to the French development organization CIRAD. Robust works with students and Ugandan institutions to help them provide scientific support in the field. Small coffee shrubs planted in black plastic bags rest against each other in rows in a greenhouse. And new strains of the Robusta coffee variety sit in clear plastic tubs on shelves. Here at Uganda's National Coffee Research Institute, scientists want to use the symbiotic relationship between the trees and coffee to improve soil quality and strengthen resistance to things like pests. Cuttings of new strains are being given to farmers for cultivation. Betty Magambo, a research officer at the Coffee Research Institute, explains. When the breeding section does the improvement, improvement to different traits, resistance to diseases, yield, and so on, those materials have to have enough numbers so that we avail them to farmers. Specifically for the robust project, they are trying to develop the drought-resistant varieties. The robust program is still in its infancy. If it proves effective over the next four years, CIRAD scientist Fabrice Pinard hopes that it can set a new precedent for sustainable coffee farming around the world. The potential is enormous. It's not meant to stay within the borders of Uganda, and it's meant to be known. And it will be, I would say, open access for everybody. This means that initially it will concern all the countries, for example, in Africa that grow robusta coffee. And this is quite vast because it starts in Uganda and ends in West Africa, in Côte d'Ivoire on the coast. So this program will be open to everyone. 
It will also be some time before the project produces scientific results, but some farmers are already reporting the positive impact that tree shade has on their crops. The animals on Aaron Kiaga's farm are reaping the benefits too. The farmer trims back some of the trees on his land. The branches are going to feed the gods, who are waiting patiently in the dusty farmyard. They seem to enjoy the trees just as much as the coffee plants. George Okachi with that report by Julius Magambwa. Now we move on to another addictive beverage, one that's been with us for many thousands of years. In fact, records show that some of the earliest wine in the world was probably produced in Georgia in around 6,000 BC. As an art, winemaking has gone through big transformations over the centuries. And now, as the climate changes, that art is yet again having to adapt and finesse. Because the thing is, if the conditions aren't just right, some of the world's most cherished wines simply cannot be made anymore. But where one door closes, another opens, as Danny Mitzman found out at the Slow Wine Fair in the northern Italian city of Bologna, where she pressed winemakers, tasters and merchants on the sustainable future of wines worldwide. Now, even if you're not a wine drinker, that's OK, because this story is about more than that. Trust me. I'll let Danny Mitzman take it from here. Oh, and one more thing you might need to know for this story. Viticulture is like agriculture, but for wine. Hailing from America to China, 700 wine producers have brought their bottles and stories to the Slow Wine Fair. Among the most dramatic testimonies is that of the young Chilean winemaker Gustavo Rifo. We had a catastrophe three weeks ago. A fire. It led to a loss of 400 hectares of ancient vineyards. They were part of a wine patrimony of Chile of South America. They were more than 200 years old. It's going to be very complicated to recover, and it will take a long time to get back to the same level of production as before. Also painting a worrying picture of the impact of global warming on traditional winemaking is the Italian enologist Federico Garzelli. We did have in the last uh, three years completely different, a completely extreme events. Federico's worked in wine-growing regions all over Europe and now makes wine on the small Greek island of Patmos in the southern Aegean. He says making wines becomes so challenging there that most locals have abandoned it for tourism. For example, it didn't rain for the whole year, and then all the water came along together in a huge flood. The soil is not able to absorb all the water that comes down. You have problems of erosion of the soil, so you lose nutrients. Or last year, for example, it was extremely dry the whole year. And then in summertime, when the maturation process of the grapes happens, the high temperatures can bring to loss of acidity, lower pH of the wines, some burnt grapes, and the maturation process of the grapes doesn't happen properly. Viticulture is very sensitive to temperature and climate, not in terms of surviving of the plants, but in terms of the expression of the wine. There are no magic solutions, but Federico and his colleagues at the Patinos winery use natural methods to mitigate the impact. 
things like biodynamic agriculture and protective wood chip mulch to improve soil fertility and water retention. Then there are different things. We try, for example, to cover the grapes from the sun in order to don't get the, the berries burnt. How do you cover the grapes? We try to cover with the leaves of the plants. So basically we try to make the grapes grow inside the plant with a nice protection with leaves. So in order to be in the shade and not directly exposed to the sun. Rita Babani's winery Ankarani is located half an hour from the slow wine fair in the hills above Faenza. Our family has been making wine since 1934. We personally are vinifying since 2001. And the change we are facing is important. Everything that happens is, it's extreme. I mean, hail, when it comes, it's a strong hail that takes away all the production. How are you dealing with these changes? You try to harvest a little bit earlier, but not too early, otherwise you get a green wine. That's the point. Now we are in the middle between getting the raw wine from getting an over-matured wine. It must be having an impact on the price of wine as well, if you're making less. Correct, it does. So that's also a kind of compromise you have to find between the quantity you produce, the price you should sell it to, but it's impossible to be applied on the bottle because nobody will buy it. And so the erosion is not only with the soil, but also to your income. Right now, Federico says it's all about damage limitation. Globally, the average of the temperature will rise up of uh, two degrees. It means that in a single region, the rising up of the temperature will be crazy high, so very difficult. For example, there are studies that shows that in Napa Valley, the temperature now or at least in the last 10 years, it was uh, about 16.5 degrees. And in the next years, it will go up to 19. So this makes things even more complicated for viticulture because every single variety has a specific range of temperature where it can give high quality wines. For example, Merlot in Napa Valley and Cabernet Sauvignon especially, they won't be able to be produced anymore or uh, still the wines won't be as nice as they were in the past. Leopold Fiala has an online sustainable wine shop selling international wines. For the general perceived wine regions, it's definitely bad because they are getting too warm. And when it's too warm, you need to use more fertilizers. You get high alcohol, very jammy wines. So it's not the wine style you probably want as like an elegant wine producer. While he agrees that climate change is having a devastating impact on many traditional wine regions, he says there is a flip side. But for some regions, definitely Pinot Noir is growing really well in some German regions now where it used to be more warmer regions. And, but for some Riesling producers, it's getting hard because it's getting too warm for Riesling in Germany and this used to be like the main grape. And yeah, the same, I guess, goes for all over the world. Areas are switching and there's going to be new wine areas that will be very interesting because they used to be too cold and now they're getting perfect. But Federico says it's not that simple. Only changing geography of wine, so only moving from one region to another one, like many big wineries are doing now. So I think about, for example, a big producer of champagne. 
that are moving to South England, or a lot of new wineries opening in um, in Netherlands or Scandinavia. I think that's not the solution because uh, change geography will mean a lot of problems. When you bring something new from outside, you also bring pests, insects, bacteria, phytoplasms. So actually, the impact you have on the environment is huge. Federico believes the future for sustainable winemaking instead lies in a change both of the producers and the consumers' attitudes, a willingness to adapt. Another way to actually adapt to climate change is to think or to rethink about uh, our taste. So we should think about wine as a different product. That's why, for example, we are trying to change also the way of production. And since we don't want to use any chemical additives or do any chemical practices in order to adjust the taste of the wine, instead of making uh, red full-body wines as they were doing in the past, we decided to make a very easy-drinking wine with low alcohol in order to keep the acidity of the wines and be more balanced. At their online wine shop, Great Times, Leopold says that's just the kind of approach they're looking for. As a company, we kind of focus on yeah, newer wine styles, so more like younger generation winemakers, which are changing towards doing more spontaneous fermentation, less filtration, using less sulfides, so more like a natural approach to wine without additives or fertilizers and stuff in the field, or then do less as possible in the cellar and I think this is this sort of like a super old style that's coming back and it's kind of more sustainable in a way because you you don't need that as much resources at slow wine there are already signs of change well from this orange wine we only make 600 bottles per year so it's pretty small Luciano Peirone makes high-altitude wines in the Argentinian province of Jujuy in the Andes region, something that wouldn't have been possible half a century ago. We have the distinguished like, signature of making high-altitude wines. So in a way, has the rising temperature caused by climate change been beneficial almost to you? Yeah, I would say that yes. The climate change is not good for anybody, but in this case, it's allowing new places to appear. And we are the example of that because I know maybe 50 years ago, the weather, it would be much cooler than now. And right now we are able to have crops and I know you can find tomatoes and other things in the area. Do you think the future of wine consumption is changing? Are people not just going with the classic denominations and perhaps being a little bit more curious and creative in what they drink. Yeah, I think that nowadays the consumer is seeking for new experiences and not also like the feeling, the aromas and the taste of wine, but also a history behind the wine. Nowadays they want to speak with the producer, they want to know the place, they want to see pictures and that's something great for us, for the small producers. I think that, yeah, people want something new. Can we taste some of your wines? Yeah, yeah, let's go. Danny Mitzman for DW in Bologna.
This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Andreas Becker. I'm Nicholas Martin. Imagine if someone promised to double your money within a year by investing in medical cannabis. Would you believe it? This is the story of the biggest cannabis scam ever. This is the story of Juicy Fields. And the scam might just go on. I've lost 20k. I had 350,000 euros in the account. I lost a lot of money myself. But even worse is that I encouraged my own son to invest in Juicy Fields. Juicy Fields. These scammers, they had brought in psychologists, they had brought in people who are professionally human behavior. This is a story about greed. If you invest 20k, you'll have 90k in just five years. I think people are surprised that we're offering a good investment. Money, money, green, you know, like everybody likes money. And it's the story of an industry in a gold rush. Canada is venturing where no industrialized nation has gone before by legalizing marijuana. And as coalition talks progress here in Germany, there's one thing the three parties hoping to govern together do agree on, legalizing cannabis. There's a lot of fake consultants. There's a lot of people that say we got this, we got that, and they don't have anything. This is Cannabis Cowboys. A story about big dreams, juicy money, and never-ending hype. Brought to you by DW. In this investigative podcast series, we take you to where the Cannabis Cowboys worked and schemed. This is where Juicy Fields started. We are standing there a week after the scam exploded. Since then, everybody is kind of like running around like headless chickens. We share our doubts. The equivalent would be roughly 280 billion US dollars going in and going out again. Wow. wow. Maybe this is the Juicy Fields account? Yeah. Maybe it's not. Maybe. But we have to find out more about this address. And we take you into a world that we didn't expect to enter when we started this investigation. It bears all the trademarks for Russian mafia, and they know exactly how this is done. It's a fantasy. People want that the Russian is the very best. Stop fantasy. Kommt einem auch irgendwie so irreal. It just feels surreal, like you're in a gangster movie. So what exactly happened? Who's behind all this? How is it possible that the scam might just go on? That's what this podcast series is all about. We have owners that sometimes like to be flashy, hence why they like cannabis and crypto. One more shout out to Juicy Field, check them out on Juicy Field. Cannabis Cowboys, a story about big dreams, juicy money and never-ending hype. Brought to you by DW. Find Cannabis Cowboys wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Living Planet, produced out of DW Studios in Germany. From coffee and wine, we now turn to another indulgent pastime. Flying. In an aeroplane, that is. Now, this is something that's become a highly controversial topic in climate debates in recent years. All up, flying accounts for around 2.5% of global CO2 emissions. Which might not sound like very much, 
But since only around 20% of the world's population actually fly, it's a big carbon budget for a small group of people. Plus, although the emissions from domestic flights are counted as part of a country's emissions, international flights are not. These exist in their own separate category, which also means that there aren't great incentives for countries to reduce them. Experts say that we're likely to be waiting a while for the Tesla of the skies. Because right now, the giant batteries that would be needed to power an electric plane are too heavy. Some companies have, however, been experimenting with another alternative, so-called sustainable aviation fuel. In 2016, some 500 flights used this kind of fuel that's made from renewable sources such as reused cooking oil. Last year, nearly half a million flights used it, almost all of them in Europe. Now the French are saying that they have the second generation of this fuel ready to go, made from sugar derived from plant waste. John Lawrenson sent this update on the fuel's development from the Champagne region. The vast metal cylinder of a sugar beet washing machine turns at the edge of a field that stretches off to the misty horizon. Half of the Champagne region is grapes, the other half is beets, huge quantities of beets. It was Napoleon Bonaparte who ordered the mass planting of sugar beet in response to the blockade of Europe by the British Navy that was blocking sugar supplies from the Caribbean. 200 years later, France is still one of the biggest sugar beet producers in the world. Next to the big beet washer is a big sugar factory and next to that a much smaller techier production unit of steel tubs and tubes. This is the unit we built in 2022. Co-founder and CEO of Global Bioenergies, Marc Delcourt, says the plant uses bacteria to produce a hydrocarbon, fuel, in other words, from sugar. Technology it took them 14 years to develop. So we have a process to convert sugars, whatever it is. It can be sugar beet, sugar cane, sugar from starch, so corn or wheat, or even sugar from agricultural leftovers such as straw and forestry leftovers like sawmill wood chips. Delcourt says using plants as feedstock is better than using oil because while they're growing, plants remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, helping limit the effects of climate change. But does this new fuel do the job? Well, a plane flew a test flight from Germany to France a little while ago with only this new aviation fuel in the tank and arrived safe and sound. The American Society for Testing and Materials is testing the fuel at the moment. John Plaza, CEO of the American arm of Sky Energy, a Dutch trader moving into SAF production, says the market opportunity is significant. We're anticipating huge demand due to both policy in the EU and the US, as well as the aviation industry's goal to be net zero by 2050. At the moment, sustainable aviation fuel is considerably more expensive than oil-based kerosene. But, says Plaza, with economies of scale, all this would change. As prices balance out on traditional petroleum, as carbon pricing comes into the market, and as the industry scales, we think we can reach parity in the future. But it does take assistance from government and commercial entities to develop the industry to bring that scale about. No different than wind and solar. Uh, 
back at the Global Bioenergies plant. The unit manager shows me a new enormous fermentation vat that is due to start operating next month, turning more plant sugar into fuel. And, says Marc Delcourt, this is just the start. Today, we, this process is working at 100 tonne scale, and we prepare for larger volumes. We prepare for a 2,000 tonnes plant in France in 2025, and eventually for a 30,000 tonnes plant in France again in 2027 or 28. And this 30,000 tonnes plant will be the right size for serving the large markets of the fuel, and especially the air transportation fuel, the sustainable aviation fuel. The feedstock from that plant that the French hope will change the future of air transport will be made from sugar derived from waste from the timber industry in the heavily forested northeast of the country. John Lawrence and DW Pomacle in the Champagne region of France. And with that story on sustainable fuel aviation out of France, we come to an end of this week's Living Planet. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to Living Planet on any podcast app to get a new episode each week. And if you like what we're doing and you have some feedback for us, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. Today's show was mixed and produced by Bibka Tegdmeyer and me, Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. <laughs>